This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. Throughout the 20th century, people left Appalachia in search of jobs and opportunities. Often, factory work was difficult, but those Appalachian people brought with them a sense of community. We would play hide-and-go-seek, horseshoes, basketball. We'd be playing touch football, you know, in, in summertime, and maybe a neighbor come by and say, who's winning the game? That story and more coming up this West Virginia morning. Congressman Alex Mooney will run for U.S. Senate in 2024. Amelia Nicely has more. Less than a week after winning re-election to a fifth term in Congress, Republican Alex Mooney is starting another campaign. He announced Tuesday that he'll run for the U.S. Senate in two years and hopes to take the seat held by Democrat Senator Joe Manchin. Manchin has held the seat since 2010 and has not yet announced if he'll run in 2024. Democrats maintained control of the Senate after midterm elections last week, and Mooney said it's part of the reason he's running in hopes of flipping control. Mooney's bid for Senate comes as he is the subject of two ongoing House Ethics Committee investigations. Mooney has said his office is fully cooperating with the committee. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Amelia Nicely in Charleston. The state's consumer advocate is recommending that Mon Power purchase a power plant that's scheduled to shut down next year. Curtis Tate has more. The Pleasance Power Station in Pleasance County is slated for closure next year, but Monpower could prevent that by buying it. That's what Emily Medine, an energy consultant, told the West Virginia Public Service Commission in written testimony. The Pleasance plant has pollution controls that cut nitrogen oxide, which creates smog. Monpower's Fort Martin Power Station in Monongalia County does not have similar controls. To comply with federal regulations, it must purchase nitrogen oxide credits, and they've become expensive. Medine says the Pleasance plant could continue to operate and Fort Martin could close. The PSC will hold an evidentiary hearing on the matter next month. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. West Virginia's alarming infant mortality rates were the subject of a Legislative Interim Health Committee session Monday. Randy Yowie has more. Medical experts from the state and private sector addressed lawmakers, noting that West Virginia has the eighth highest infant mortality rate in the country. Programs to improve outcomes include curtailing smoking and substance use disorders among pregnant women. Dr. David Didden, medical director of DHHR's Office of Maternal, Child, and Family Health, agrees that the state's recent abortion ban is a factor in recruiting OBGYNs to West Virginia. If we're able to activate our nurse midwives and successfully recruit more obstetricians to the state, we can send the message that we are in support of reproductive health. Didden also said West Virginia must address the long distances many must travel to a birthing hospital. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie. The Allegheny Front, based in Pittsburgh, is a public radio program that reports on environmental issues in the region. Here's their latest story on the conflicts between wind energy farms and rural communities. Could rural opposition derail the expansion of wind energy? This is the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Carol Holsoppel. Amid the push to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, some rural communities find themselves on the front lines of clean energy development. 
The Allegheny Front's Julie Grant reports on one Ohio county where voters will decide on November 8th whether to join the transition to wind power. But the campaign is awash in misinformation. As a retired school teacher in rural north-central Ohio, Ann Fry never expected to be a meme. I was kind of flattered. Not everybody gets to be a meme. Still, it was a personal attack, and it was in response to her support for wind energy. Fry points to a fall field of soybeans. It's one plot of 300 acres in Seneca County her family purchased in recent years. Some of the land had already been leased to a wind developer, Apex Clean Energy. We were excited for green energy. But in the summer of 2021, the Ohio legislature gave locals new power. It passed a law that allows counties to block development of large-scale solar and wind projects. Last November, the Seneca County commissioners used that law to ban renewable energy projects. Mick McCarthy lives just south of Seneca County in Crawford County, Ohio. He's been campaigning to stop the latest Apex Wind Farm proposal, a 60-turbine, 300-megawatt project. Apex has signed at least 300 lease agreements. McCarthy says his neighbor has signed with Apex, but he hasn't. Conservatively, within 1,600 feet of my house, they will be able to construct one of these 650-foot industrial wind turbines. He and others worry not only about lower property values and turbines catching fire, but also health impacts like the loss of sleep, migraines, and nausea they fear from the turbine's low-level sound and the flickering shadow of the blades. We don't have full rights. We can't expect to be healthy on our property. The Ohio Department of Health did an assessment of the scientific literature about health and wind farms earlier this year. It found no evidence that wind farms cause physical health impacts. Davi Wilson is vice president of public affairs for Apex Clean Energy. We would argue that many of the things that people are scared of are not real and are not going to happen. She points out that Crawford County has a lot to gain from the wind farm. Apex has agreed to pay the county $81 million over the 30 years of the project and about $45 million in landowner lease payments. Despite this, the Crawford County commissioners used the new state law to ban industrial wind energy in some areas. But this time, Apex did not back down. Instead, it collected signatures for a ballot initiative. Now local voters will decide whether to keep the ban or allow the wind project. But Wilson says misinformation is spreading in the community. It's just really a shame when huge decisions are being made based on incomplete or inaccurate information or for political reasons when there's just this huge opportunity before us. Joshua Fergan agrees. He's currently a researcher at the University of Minnesota and spent years looking at wind developments in rural communities. Fergan's study found there's a coordinated network of anti-wind energy activism on Facebook where non-local actors participate in local issues. I would find the same people that were in Ohio spreading posts or the same people in Pennsylvania spreading posts. But he says the purpose seems to be to create fear, confusion, and disruption around wind energy. Crawford County votes on November 8th, and Fergan says it will be part of deciding whether wind energy can get the support it needs in rural communities to be a real climate solution. I'm Julie Grant. And that's the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Carol Holsapple. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. It's 751.
slight chance of rain this morning with mostly cloudy skies today. High temperatures in the 40s. A slight chance of snow tonight. Lows in the 20s and 30s. Partly cloudy and breezy tomorrow with highs in the 40s. Support for WVPB is provided by Marshall Health. Providing comprehensive primary and specialty care throughout southern West Virginia and the tri-state region. More at marshallhealth.org. Inside Appalachia recently aired its What is Appalachia episode, which usually opens a discussion with listeners about where Appalachia begins and where it ends. A place that doesn't come up much is Atlanta, Georgia, but the case could be made that it could be included. After the Civil War, Appalachian migrants came to a part of Atlanta to work, bringing with them their mountain culture. Jess Mader has this story about Cabbage Town. The smokestacks of the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill still tower over Cabbage Town. The 19th century district is famous for its narrow streets of Victorian homes, small cottages, and shotgun houses. It was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1976. Carol. Hey, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. I'm Ronald. 83-year-old Ronald Edwards has lived in Cabbage Town his entire life. His small white house with a wide front porch sits a few blocks from the mill. I was born in 1938 on Powell Street, and I worked in the cotton mill. Edward's father and brother also worked at the mill. So did all of their neighbors. At its height, the complex employed nearly 3,000 people, turning raw cotton into bags for flour, grains, and other goods. Edwards worked in the fabric inspection department. What I do is run, uh, run the cloth through a winder and got all the bad defects out of it, make sure all the defects was out of it, you know. The work was physically exhausting. The hours were long and the pay was low. But Edwards says neighbors helped each other get by. They shared conversation, food, and music. Rocking in his creaky chair, he remembers Cabbage Town as a great place to grow up. We would play hide-and-go-seek, horseshoes, basketball. We'd be playing touch football, you know, in, in summertime, and maybe a neighbor come by and say, who's winning the game? Mom would be cooking breakfast or something, and a neighbor would come by and, and visit for two hours or more and just sit and visit and talk. And people don't do that anymore. The neighborhood's small-town feel thrived in part because of Cabbage Town's relative isolation. It's sandwiched along railroad tracks and the massive mill that covered several city blocks. Today, Edwards uses a cane. He has trouble getting around. He loves to sit by his living room window or out on the porch and chat with whoever walks by. Everybody in the neighborhood knows him. It's really cool. Edwards' son, Ronnie, sits near his dad in the living room. Family photos and mementos decorate every wall. The magic thing I think about Cabbage Town is that you're instantaneously family. Like, I have never felt it anywhere else. 
That spirit of community faded for a while after the mill began shutting down in the late 70s. With the jobs leaving, some mill families moved away too. The area quickly declined. Drugs, prostitution, and violence took hold. To try and keep the peace, Ronnie says some longtime residents started an informal neighborhood watch group. Sometimes it was people out walking around. One of the members is named Myra, and she liked to power walk. So we would all power walk. Just being out in the community and and showing, hey, we're not going to hide from this. Activists opened a community center for laid-off workers. There were after-school programs, and when gentrification began in the 80s, activists battled with real estate speculators, developers, and slumlords. They lobbied to protect what made Cabbage Town's arts, culture, and industrial heritage so unique. It's a mission that continues to this day. My name is Jacob Elsus, and I am the great-great-grandson of. The founder of Fulton Bag and Cotton Mills, whose name was also Jacob Elsus, his great great grandfather was a German-speaking Jewish immigrant and Union Army veteran who came to America at the age of 18. He started as a street peddler and ended up in the textile business. Soon, the Elsus Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill grew into one of the biggest in the South. Its industrial output helped rebuild Atlanta after the Civil War. While Cabbage Town was more ethnically diverse than some outsiders assumed, Elsa says its dominant white Appalachian culture put the name Cabbage Town on the map. It was a derogatory name given to it by people on the outside. Surely they're a bunch of people who eat nothing but cabbage, poor mill workers. Even though there were certainly a lot of inhabitants who never wanted to call it Cabbage Town, eventually it became a badge of honor. That story recently aired on Inside Appalachia. You can hear a longer version of it on our website at wvpublic.org. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day on our website, wvpublic.org. Org. Support for our news bureaus comes from West Virginia University, Concord University, and Shepherd University. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Amelia Nicely, Bill Lynch, Caroline McGregor, Curtis Tate, Chris Schultz, Eric Douglas, Jessica Lilly, Liz McCormick. Randy Yowie and Shepard Snyder. Eric Douglas is our news director, and he produced today's show. I'm your host, Teresa Wills. This is West Virginia Morning.